Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean... No one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and somehow, I'm still here. I also survived our stupid, broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together. Because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. What up, people? Welcome back to the show. As usual, a quick reminder before we get started, if you like the show, I hope you do, please leave me a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show, or don't. Either way, I still like you. On the show today, a really powerful episode. Johnny Crowder is the founder of Cope Notes and the host of the Cope Notes podcast. He's a rising star in the mental health and mental illness advocate space. This guy is a highly vocal suicide abuse survivor with a riveting TED Talk that you absolutely must watch. A link is in the episode description. Johnny's paying it forward with Cope Notes, a groundbreaking new text-based mental health platform that provides peer-to-peer support with daily notes to users in nearly 100 countries worldwide. This platform is a consummate example of advocacy building the community that you only wished you had when shit went down. We talk a lot about System of a Down, which he takes a lot of inspiration for as a working musician and founder of the band Prison. Enjoy the show. Johnny Crowder on the show today. My God, Cope Notes, this is crazy shit. I want to bond with you on so many levels, but I also want to play the dumb guy. Because I was raised at a time where just get the fuck over it was therapy. And literally, you're talking to a 47-year-old Gen Xer from the 80s who is totally aware and totally sensitive to all the ridiculousness that happens to human beings on a day-to-day basis when you're well, let alone when cancer, a rare disease, a mishap, a malady, something bad happens, and it just triggers all this crazy shit that we don't really talk about. And I love that you talk about this shit because is anyone really talking about this crazy shit that I want to learn from you on the show? So welcome with that unnecessarily lengthy intro to Out of Patience. Dude, I appreciate you having me. Let's start with the tattoos, right? What's with the tattoos? Because I love it. I don't have, I have cancer tattoos. I don't consider those like intentionally wanted Mm. or needed, but- You got the tattoos, bro. You're wearing it. Yeah, I grew up drawing all over myself, like with (laughs) markers, and would get in trouble at school and at home. And I just, I've always loved art. And in a weird way, I know that I can say this because of the work that I do. 
for a lot of my life, I loved art and I despised my body. Mm. So it was at least when I first started getting tattooed, it was kind of like I was covering up parts of myself that I didn't like. And fortunately, I started developing a healthier relationship with tattoos where now, like I have a tattoo across my whole forearm and it's these tally marks that are like scratched into my form. And it's it's huge. They're huge tally marks. And kids at church will ask me, is that for how many days you've been in prison? And I look at them and say, it's how many years I've been in prison to scare them. But in reality, it's my gratitude checklist. Like I'm covered in reminders now. Unlike Memento, which is where you don't know what's going on, you're doing this on purpose. Yeah. So what is the opposite of Guy Pierce? It is you, Johnny Crowder. Dude, and... and- Interestingly, I do have pretty severe memory loss from my medication that I took, um, antipsychotic medication. So I do have the memory loss and the tattoos. I love the side effects of the benefits of a drug you need to make your life easier. And then shit gets weirder because you're on the drug that's supposed to help you. Oh, yeah. Right now, actually, I have. um, Do you know what tardive dyskinesia is? syllables. That's all I heard. Syllables. So I have an involuntary movement disorder that's actually chronic. We tried to medicate it away and that didn't work Um, just from taking medication for a long time. And um, my doctor was like, well, for the rest of your life, you know, your hands might shake and you might rock back and forth in your seat and your tongue and mouth might twitch. And, you know, You're just going to be moving. And I just thought to myself, at least I'm not trying to kill myself anymore. (laughs) Like, I'd rather be alive and rock back and forth in my seat than not be alive, you know? Well, we're going to talk about all the good problems to have when you're not dead. Whether it's from anything, for any reason, there's plenty of good problems to have when you're not dead. The least of which is, A, not being dead, but having the George Costanza fake elbow thing from that episode. Am I too old for that or you know what I'm talking about? I haven't seen that episode. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, he fakes an elbow injury just to get out of something, but it's like his elbow has like this spontaneous Tourette's to it. And it's just a hysterical <laughs> episode. It's worth it's worth digging up on the internet. So yeah, pic- I mean, picture Tourette's, but for my whole body and no curse words. You'd fit right in on the subway here in New York, by the way. No one would know a damn yeah. thing was wrong with you. I can't, I can't do New York, man. I get so overwhelmed. And like, I still live now with anxiety and New York is like the most anxiety inducing place I've ever been. Wait, where are you now? Right now? I live in Tampa. So Florida is less stress inducing. Maybe the West Coast is a lot less stress inducing than say like Miami or Dade County or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much like a, I want to make eye contact with people. I want to smile and ask them how their day is. And in New York, I'm not even joking. When I, when I go on tour with my band and we play New York pretty much every full U.S. tour that we do. And when we're driving into New York, I'm not exaggerating. I close my eyes. I put a sleep mask on and I lay down in the back of the van because I can't even look outside because that's how stressed and anxious I get. There's something about like how densely populated it is that just freaks me out. I was, uh, as of this taping, my family, I just got back from Turks and Caicos. We took our first vacation in three years. It was wonderful and met a lot of people from the Midwest. I mean, technically Florida for me is anything south of like Jersey's the Midwest, anything like left of Jersey's the Midwest. <laughs> anything you know. south of Jersey is the Midwest. Yeah. I'm just trying to wrap my head around 
what your mental map of the country looks yeah, it, like. Look, I'm I'm gonna own my Brooklyn-ness. That's all I have. I love it. That's all I have left to, in this world. My Brooklyn-ness. <laughs> but met a lot of people from like Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas, like really mm-hmm. wonderful families, and they're all like. So what's it like in New York? I'm not going to make fun of their accent because it, that's not – it's their – I have the accent to them. So <laughs> – but I'm like it's a lot nicer than people think. But yes, there's no eye contact. However, if you do fall in the street, if there is a taxi barreling toward you, someone will gain humanity for a brief moment in time and save you. Yeah, you're like, well, no one's going to show any humanity unless you're about to die. And then there may it's a dice roll. If you get snake eyes, then someone might save you. No, literally, if someone falls, there's always someone to help you out. But then we just kind of walk away and don't want to know who you are. Yeah, I guess that's the benefit of population density is like the odds are in your favor. Someone near you will save you. It's a urban bell curve. I'll say it that way. <laughs> I want to talk about the music because I, I listened to to some of your tracks on YouTube. Oh, and, boy. And it harkened me back. I hope this is a compliment to you. It's a compliment from me. It harkened me back to Pantera and listening to Headbangers Ball with Adam Curry in the 80s on MTV. Is that something you take as a compliment? Yeah, dude. Headbangers Ball, like, I mean, no shade to my parents, but Headbangers Ball raised me. There you go. There you go. Adam Curry for the win. Man, my, that guy had the first podcast too, by the way. Props to Adam Curry. I didn't know that. He did. Before that was a word. Like the iPod came out. He's like, here's a podcast. Like, who are you? I'm Adam Curry. I'm listening. That's awesome. So yeah. Yeah, man. All all that he- heavy music. I mean, for me growing up, it was lots of like Slipknot and Korn, uh, Linkin Park, System of a Down, that era of bands, like that new metal wave. What got you into that genre? I think it was two things. It was being angry. (laughs) I was extremely angry at this time in my life. But also it was, there was like a general disregard for the way that something was perceived, which I found kind of endearing and interesting. Like if you look at Korn and Slipknot, they might tell the truth in a song, even if it's an ugly truth, right? They might show their cards And it's not always about like being tough and putting your best foot forward and making sure that your outward impression makes other people like you. Sometimes it was just like ugly and raw and honest. And there was something about that that I think really resonated with me because at this point in my life, I was trying to appear normal to other people so that people would leave me alone. And I looked at these bands and I was like, wow, they're not trying to appear normal to anyone. They're being 100% themselves. So back in those days, if you could have toured with any band, who would it have been? Probably. Wow, that's real tough because I just named like my big four. Yeah. I'm making you pick your favorite kid. I think at the time, the band, and we're talking like sixth grade, okay? This is not my current answer. Right. Okay. My sixth grade answer would have been System of a Down because they were kind of like the first in the door. I heard them before I heard Linkin Park and Slipknot and Korn, and they were the ones that woke me up to like, wait a second, there's like heavier music than Chevelle? (laughs) Yes. Which, no shade to Chevelle. I love Chevelle. So you said you were angry. Were you always in this space of uncertainty and self-doubt and questioning and, and just predisposed to being a, of that mindset as a kid? Well, 
without getting into too much detail, I was abused as a kid, and very few things will produce an angrier child than abuse. From the perspective of being traumatized as a child, does that exacerbate your predispositions as a kid to hold that in? Is this what this is about, holding it in and finding ways to release it? Yeah, I'm looking back at my younger self and I'm realizing like the reason I turned to music in the first place, well, just to paint a brief picture of part of my family, both of my brothers were like football, driving trucks, you know, you know, they were like guys, guys. And I was wearing girls jeans and painting and writing poetry and playing guitar. I was that creative person. And I think I probably turned to self-expression out of necessity because when I would go through something, I wouldn't really feel comfortable discussing it with somebody else. So I had, I needed a place to put that. And a lot of times art was that non-judgmental medium that I could express myself through. So I was in grade school in the early 80s, middle school in the 80s. And back then bullying was just as horrible as it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Were you bullied? Oh, didn't you hear me? I wrote poetry and wore girls jeans. A hundred percent, dude. I was, I was a fist magnet. I mean, it was kind of a leading question, obviously, but yeah. you know, I mean, these days you can't bully. If you get bullied, you get expelled. They therapize you. And you know, where do you, where do you want to balance hard knocks with like, I can't therapize this kid to not want to bully you, but he's bullying you because there's probably some underlying reason he needs to feel that this has to be done or she needs to feel that that has to be done. The mean girl syndrome. Dude, honestly, growing up, I, I, you know, that's your whole life. If you're 10 years old and some kid, like I was bullied, especially by this one kid I remember named Axel and he, he had the coolest name and he was the meanest kid. He like, literally would would physically hit me and i'm looking back and i thought like when you're 10 you're like wow oh no if i go to school and axel's gonna be there like i might as well just not even go to school and in your head that's like your entire your little microcosm of the universe is all that exists right like i don't know that there are other countries i don't know that there are planets i don't know that there are subcultures or tv shows or anything all i know is i'm scared to go to school. And as you get older, fortunately, your horizons broaden a little bit and you realize that if Axel doesn't like you, that's okay. But there's a fine line because even if someone doesn't like you, that doesn't mean they should get to beat up on you. You think Axel's in jail now? Dude, almost all the kids who bullied me growing up are living like very average lives right now. And I remember growing up thinking that they were the cool ones. Mm-hmm. And then now I'm like, I'm freaking torn in a metal band and running a company. Like, at least at least my life got better instead of staying the same or getting worse. I think a lot of the people who bullied me, their lives kind of stayed the same. Well, the know? lesson is never peak in your teens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back with our guest after the break. (laughs) 
Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, Johnny, picking up, you've been very public about your biography, your history, and even on LinkedIn, 28-year-old suicide abuse survivor. Why is this something we even need to talk about? It's so uncomfortable. Well, that's, I mean, you answered the question basically with the second half of what you said. I did that on purpose. <laughs> you know I did that on purpose. No, it's, um, I remember when I first started doing advocacy, I was so freaked out. And I couldn't really tell my friends and family, right? But I, I felt like I could tell a stranger or two, like doing public advocacy. And I remember early on thinking, oh, no, this is going to affect my career. It's going to affect my relationships and stuff. But then I realized that if someone had shown me what it looks like to live with a mental illness, to live with a traumatic past and like just be a generally functional adult, like they brush their teeth and they can drive a vehicle and go to work. If I would have seen that example and been able to like forecast a different version of my future that maybe wasn't as dark or wasn't as bleak as I was imagining in my teenage years, it would have meant the world to me. So the reason I speak so much about it is because when I tell somebody I, I live with schizophrenia, they go, well, not you, or oh, you God. used to have <laughs> schizophrenia, but like, look at you now, you're like forming sentences. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, but that's why I have to speak about this because you think that people who have schizophrenia can't talk or that we're criminals or something, you know, you got to bust that stigma or else no one's going to talk about it. I feel like the creating something that you wished you had is the best way to pay it forward when you've gone through all sorts of shit that you didn't ask for. 100%. So I want to ask an ignorant question. And this is an, I, I genuinely mean this. In cancer, the word survivor was invented in 1986. 
by a group called the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. Prior to 1986, the vernacular was you were a cancer victim. Whether you lived or whether you died, you were a victim. Mm. That's how we refer to you. If you attempt suicide and hopefully fail, if I said that the right way, and you're still here, you're not a victim of suicide. You're a survivor of suicide. Or do you ever even use the word victim? Because that's a terrible word. Well, I think there's validity to... I mean, I try not to like wag my finger at people who feel victimized by mental illness because there's a lot of validity to that. But I do think that there's incredible power in the words that we use and especially how we refer to ourselves. Um, It's a difference between me saying I live with schizophrenia versus I am a schizophrenic. There's a pretty distinct difference between those two things. So I'm I'm a champion of the word survivor, but I also know people who don't like that word and will correct me. They're like, well, don't call me a survivor. I don't like that word. And I'm like, okay, let me know which word makes you feel more empowered because that's at the end of the day, the word that you should be using. Right. There's like cancer warrior, cancer thriver, like metaphor choice. Just don't be a dick. Yeah. (laughs) Don't throw in my face that I said a word that makes you uncomfortable because you're using the word this way. That's fine with me. But you have spent over a decade achieving, accomplishing, overcoming, and decided, rightfully so, to become a highly visible activist and advocate using your platform. It's an extraordinary story. But I do want to go to one particular point I read about you You studied psychology. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like when the cancer doctor gets cancer, right? What was it like for you to understand psychology and then need to be a client of it? Bro, so actually, this is a a really important part of my story. I didn't like get diagnosed with all of these different mental illnesses and then just like magically become more mature with time. I actually pursued psychology after being diagnosed out of sheer disbelief of the diagnoses that I received. So like part of me said, well, if I'm living with mental, if I'm living with mental illness, I want to learn about psychology and maybe become a clinician or something so I can help other people because my, my clinicians at the time totally sucked. But then I thought there was this part of me that I want to say was a small part of me, but Looking back, it was probably bigger than I'd like to admit. There was part of me that said, well, yeah, if I have mental illness, I'll help people. But really, I know that my doctors are wrong, and I'm going to learn about just how wrong they are by going to school for psychology. So I went to kind of like disprove my diagnoses, and I wound up actually confirming them (laughs) through an objective course study. So that kind of backfired. You became your own self-evidence-based human experience. Yeah, it was very humbling for sure. Like when when a doctor says, you know, you you live with bipolar one and I say, F you, (laughs) you don't know what you're talking about because I feel like I'm being insulted. But then a couple of years later, you sit down in an abnormal psych class with a textbook in front of you and the textbook is describing symptoms and you go, oh, shoot, this textbook isn't insulting me. This is an objective piece of learning material. This book is and I'm self-identifying. Yeah. I love that you work with NAMI. Uh, Freddie Miggins and I are are good colleagues, and we might be doing some strong partnership stuff with them in the area of podcasting. What was it like for you to get involved with a mental health 
organization. So I told you that I used to teach comedy and perform comedy in Orlando and a local comedian had died by suicide. So like the, the Orlando comedy community threw this big festival in his honor. And it was a fundraiser for NAMI, the local NAMI. I hadn't heard about NAMI before then. And um, so we throw, I mean, it took, you don't know how hard it is to get college age kids to coordinate something. I mean, it took months and months and months to actually like stand this up and get comedians to agree to perform and organize everything. And we finally do it. The The show ends like three and a half hours late. I mean, it's like three in the morning or something. And they invite the the president of the local NAMI affiliate to come on stage. And they presented her with this big like novelty check for it was probably like a very meager sum. I can't imagine it was more than five grand. And we had literally like hundreds of people worked to make this happen. And um, so we hand her this check and she's like, hey, we're NAMI. This is what we do. Thanks for the support. So she leaves. She she gets off stage and is walking to her car. And you got to picture this. I am 50 pounds heavier than I am now, covered in tattoos, wearing a death metal T-shirt, chasing her down the street in downtown Orlando while she's carrying a giant novelty check at three in the morning. and. I just said, hey, I want to help. I don't know how. I'm not even healthy right now. Like, I'm actually really, really mentally unhealthy, but I want to, like, do something. I want to volunteer or or speak or help you file papers or whatever. Just let me come help you. And she did. And that changed the course of my life. So we have to get into the big part of your story, which is you and I share another bond we're both app developers, and someone once told me an app is like owning a yacht. It's a hole in the ocean that you keep throwing money into, and that you just <laughs> hope it just stays afloat. Uh, I'll end my part of the app development story now, but what does, made you decide, I think this is another obviously leading question, to get into the digital health peer-to-peer -peer app universe for this space? Well, I was doing um, individual peer-to-peer -peer support, I mean, all throughout basically from 2011 until now. And I was doing a lot of in-person peer stuff and then some group stuff. And then I was touring with my band and I would do like um, some peer support conversations in a different city every day while I was touring. And I just ran into this like scaling issue where I even started something called Not a Therapist. And it was like my first digital peer support resource, but it couldn't really scale. And the whole reason I made it, this is so funny. You're going to appreciate this because you've worked in tech. So the whole reason I did, I started doing peer support groups was because one-on-one -on -one peer support wasn't really as efficient. It couldn't really scale well. And then the whole reason I did digital peer support, like on on video and texting and stuff, was because um, I couldn't really scale the groups. And then I created Cope Nodes because I couldn't scale not a therapist. And I kept trying to make everything more efficient and automated. But then, there, let me tell you, brother, there is nothing less automated than running a company. Like the service itself is automated, thank the Lord. But it's like I kept making a more scalable version to save myself time. <laughs> and I wound up doing the most time intensive thing you could ever do, which is founding a startup. 
It's like chasing a toddler, but keep giving the toddler things to drop to chase them with. Yeah, I've, I've, um, looking back, I was just like, well, why can't I support tens of thousands of people with some kind of automated system to where it's not directly dependent on my time? Because I'm a, I'm a human. Like when I was doing peer support, dude, and book and booking appointments, these are free appointments, and I was doing. 40, 60, 80 calls a week while working a full-time job. And I was like, I just have to make a version that doesn't require all of my time. And then I launch a startup and I'm like, oh shoot, <laughs> this requires even more time. Startup yourself. What's a more startup? People. Those are easy, aren't they? Famous last words. Dude, I, I saw this um this meme today that my guitarist sent me because he's a producer. So he, he runs his own business as well. He runs a studio and it was a picture of a guy at a computer and it says, I didn't want to work nine to five. So now I work 24 <laughs> seven. <laughs> oh anyone God. who works for themselves will be able to relate to that. I feel that. I feel that. All right. Which takes us to cope notes, cope which is an exciting platform, peer to peer and mental health. Um, it is an app. It's not an app. It's app ish. Tell, tell me about it. Dude, well, well, first thing I want to mention that's going to trip a lot of people up is it's not an app. We actually put a line of copy on our website that says this is not a mental health app. And it's funny because I initially set out to create an app. And then the first few folks that I met with in the mental health field that I was telling about my idea, they brought up some really good points about app engagement is like, you know, an app notification, I think on iOS has like 1.7% read rate for a push notification from an app, but an SMS, like a text message has a 99% open rate. So there was the engagement piece, but also the health equity piece. There are tens of millions of Americans that don't have smartphones, so they can't download an app. So we're, we're just marginalizing like 11% of the US population if we create an app because they won't be able to access it. And beyond that, the privacy thing, like when you download an app, guess who gets all of your information, you know? Well, what is it when the, when the app is free, when the product is free, you're the product. Isn't that it? Yeah. 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 So we had to make a pretty conscious decision early on. Like we're going to zig when the entire industry is zagging. Like this is peak app time. I started working on Cope Notes in 28, 2017 um, we launched, well, technically 2016, 2017, then we launched early 2018. So this is like, there's millions of apps and it's like all about the app store and, oh, it's an app. And we had to make a really conscious choice not to do it, but it has served us really well because we've been able to support users that we would have never been able to support if CopeNotes was an app. We're big on prevention, intervention, maintenance. Like, and the, what I tell people is this, like, People who work outside of the mental health field or people who don't live with lived experience with mental illness, they think that there's two modes, right? You're either like walking on sunshine and unicorns and rainbows are coming out of your butt or you are in crisis and you're like that stock photo of the guy leaning against the wall with his head in his hands in a stairwell. Like there's there's so many different shades between those two modes of existence. What I normally say is if you can picture the average person, let's just say you lay all of humanity on a scale. And on the left side, you have, let's say the the 5% of people who are in constant need of care, 
this was definitely me when I was in treatment. I needed really intensive care. Um, and then on the right side, you have the unicorns and rainbows people who just never, they never stub their toe. They never spill their coffee. They never raise their voice. They're just living in la la land. And then you have the 90% of people in the middle who aren't perfect, but don't need to live in a hospital. And that's who Coke Notes is for. I love it. I love the idea behind it because you're not quite the in-case emergency break glass. Mm-hmm. How do people find out about this? I, I reason I ask is because it, it's the same old issue with a product launch. How are people made aware of something that they either didn't know they needed or wish they had and don't know exist? Yeah, that's been a challenge for sure. Fortunately, word of mouth has done all of the heavy lifting. Like Copenos has users in 94 countries right now. And you can bet your bottom dollar that I didn't go to 94 countries and I didn't run ads in 94 countries. This is just people telling people. But I will say that one thing that's helped us quite a bit, that's helped us actually support more people than we would have been able to on our own, is these group subscriptions and partnerships that we have with even county governments or businesses or healthcare systems, um, schools. And we partner with these organizations, like let's say a YMCA wants to sign up or something. They'll purchase CopeNet subscriptions and then distribute them to their people for free so that all of these people, whether it's their staff or volunteers or the families they serve, can benefit from the services and they hear about it from a trusted source like their YMCA. So this thing is real, it's live, it's in the universe. Is it exactly what you wished you had had? Although this was many, many years ago for you, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. And it's kind of a thing that maybe never ends. I I wanna point out, they say cancer may leave your body but it never leaves your life. But here's something that potentially can't leave your body. Where does that leave people that get the support? Um, I don't, I mean, at least from my perspective, I don't see it as, as necessarily binary, but I would say that I don't view myself as like completely fully recovered from everything. Like the way I try to describe it to people is, you know, if you have, if if you broke your ankle 10 years ago, like, no, I'll use a real example. So my elbow, I broke my left elbow when I was in high school and that's a rare break. There's not a lot of people who have actually broken their elbow. And I still, to this day, have a different level of strength on the left side of my body. And you obviously listeners can't see me, but um, my left pec, my chest muscles shape differently. All of my left abs, like the left side of my torso is shaped differently. My bicep and tricep and forearm muscles on my left side are shaped differently. And I don't have the same level of mobility on the left side of my body that my right side of my body has. So you could argue that I'm fully recovered because my elbow doesn't hurt right now, but there are lasting impacts that will walk with me throughout the rest of my life, you know? So I don't know that it's like either you're always at risk or you're perfect forever. I think there's, like we mentioned before, there's lots of shades in between. Right. And just to go back to where we started from, a good problem to have is that you're alive today with weird abs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I mean, I have no abs, so at least you're ahead of me. I was just about to say, me saying that makes it sound like I'm ripped. (laughs) But really, if you, it's more about... 
every time I look in the mirror, you know, there's never a day when I forget that I live with mental illness. And I think that's what's hard for people to wrap their head around is like, they'll say like, well, now that you're better. And I'm like, dude, I still to this day, when I put on deodorant, I have to consciously count a different number of swipes of the deodorant stick on each side of my body. So maybe I'll do 11 swipes on my left side and 12 swipes on my right side. And then I put the cap on my deodorant and I walk out of my room so that I can't go back and fix it. And I just have to sit with the fact that it feels wrong. And I do that on purpose. And there are trillions of things in my life that I do like that to actively combat mental illness, even though I'm not in treatment right now. What I love the most about that story is that you walked away with a prime number of armpit swipes. Dude, it's a nightmare. I don't like either of those numbers. 11 and 12 in terms of my OCD are bottom of the barrel. I was an eight guy. I was a four guy. I was a 16 guy. All right. So final question is the term mental illness too broad? How do you mean? It covers so many different things. You can't just say, oh, it's cancer. No, it's esophageal, it's lung, it's breast, it's colon. You can kind of sub-segment them. Mental illness, mental health is a, a huge spectrum that is so multifaceted and so individualized. Is it fair to lob it all under one big umbrella? Personally, I think it depends on how warmed up culture is to the conversation. Like, I mean, I would equate it to exercise. If you've been working out for 10 years and you watch exercise science videos and stuff, then yeah, you can talk about specific ways to experience muscle hypertrophy. But if you've never stepped foot in a gym in your life, maybe you can say the word exercise and it kind of encompasses everything. Like, it depends on the level of comfort and existing knowledge around the subject matter. When I'm talking to my family, I might say mental illness. When I'm talking to a crowd of clinicians, I might use specific diagnosis terms. I just am channeling my aging Gen Xer uh, back to what I said, I think, at the top of the show, which is I was raised in an era where get over it was therapy. And mm. you can't just do that anymore. And And the world is so much more frenetic because of the internet. I've talked to my mom who is 73 and she talked about how the Cuban Missile Crisis, those like three or four days in the 60s, every kid thought they were dying every day for like a, a week and <sighs> they've never gotten over that because can you really get over that kind of trauma as a single digit child knowing the world is going to end and your entire planet is gone at a moment's notice and then in the 80s, it was like nuclear holocaust, red button, President Gorbachev, crazy shit. We were taking shelter drills under wooden desks for a nuclear fire. Right? Yeah. Is the world ever going to be in a space where it's worse or better? Or is it just, this is such an existential question. Is it just different? Or honestly, I think the internet really fucked everything up. I think that the world is getting better and worse every day in different categories. So some things are getting wonderful. Some things are getting concerning, to say the least. 
And it can be tough to remember to zoom out. Every brain has a negativity bias and you can't, you have to resist the urge to cherry pick bad pieces of news and, and, you know, bad omens, you have to zoom out and be like, oh, shoot, there are things that are getting better. You know, even if the thing that's getting better is, you know, your garden or your dog's health, you know. You are a very functional optimist, and I have to give you tons of credit for that. <laughs> Dude, I, I used I used to wear a shirt that said negative mental attitude, and I felt so cool. <laughs> and now... I have a tattoo across my whole stomach that says PMA for positive mental attitude. So it is not something that has come naturally. I consciously work on it every day. Johnny Crowder, the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, host of the Cope Notes podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, a mental health advocate of mental health advocates. Thank you so much for coming on Out of Patience. Thank you, brother. That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seeley, Jen Oranja, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seeley. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.